You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Nick Montgomery. Nick is a former professional soccer player and now coach, or as they say in Europe, manager. As a player, he started his career in England, most notably playing 349 games for Sheffield United. In 2012, he moved to Australia and played for the Central Coast Mariners. In 2018, he started as an assistant coach at the Mariners before being appointed as head coach in 2021. In just his second season, he led the team to the A-League Championship, where they beat the much more fancied and resourced Melbourne City 6-1. And then, in 2023, he was appointed head coach at Scottish club Hibernian. Some of the highlights from the interview with Nick were the way he goes about understanding what drives each individual, and how this fuels his belief that people can change and the results that he had at the Mariners to prove this. How he was able to turn a team with one of the lowest salary budgets into premiers by building on what he calls a siege mentality, coupled with seasoned professionals, young energetic players, and his own unshakable belief. 
and the role that visualisation played in the story of their underdog championship. And just before we go to the interview, if you enjoy what we do here on the podcast, then head over to our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. There you will find loads of exclusive audio and video content that you can download and share with your own teams, families or friends to bring a different context to the challenge that you might be facing. We also have a newsletter that you can sign up to. It comes out every week and it contains the best ideas and insights that we have from the people that we interview on the podcast. And now, please enjoy our interview with Nick Montgomery. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Nick Montgomery, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you. Uh, really nice to, to get the invite on and looking forward to the conversation. Well, keen to chat with you all things uh, soccer as well. I know you're just back from Thailand. I, should we call it football? I guess we should call it soccer, huh? given that we're in Australia. No, it's football. It's the number one sport. I think uh, <laughs> on the media now you'll see everybody's getting behind them. And yes, yeah, definitely the number one sport. So no, Australia is a beautiful country. So many fantastic sports. And yeah, obviously the media you know, really like to to lift up the other the, the other codes and and yeah hopefully after the world cup and the women's world cup things are uh, improving in that in that all right well it's football and every time i say soccer it'll be a, a small fine which i will uh, gladly pay <laughs> into the uh, into the poor box at the church um but nick could i just start with something simple where are you in the world and what have you been doing so far today so I'm on the central coast, uh, which is in New South Wales, about an hour and a half from Sydney. Um, I've been here 11 years since since moving over from the UK. And today I actually had a day off. So really was just doing some uh, preparation work for tomorrow's session, some analysis from a few of the, the, the pre-season trial games that we've had. And my wife had me um, cutting the grass and jet washing the, the, the front of the house. So yeah, <laughs> usual day off, um, everything but putting my feet up and relaxing. Well, thank you for spending some time with us on your day off. I know this is probably uh, not what you expected to do, but I I do appreciate it because I've been keen to hear your story for quite a while, Nick. And potentially I could start by name-checking some of the – there's a couple of legends in here. There's people – the great coaches that you've had first-hand experience with. There's Chris Wilder, Brian Robson, Neil Warnock. There's a a few just to kick us off. But you've also played all around the world, and I'm just keen to hear – Nick, from this experience, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I should probably say the word man management, if that's one word or, or two words, but I just think the way that people manage um, the staff, the players, the the group as a whole, uh, I think that's po- probably the most important aspect of, of the successful leaders and coaches in, in any sport. And that's something that I, I really try hard over the years to to learn from you know, the, the good ones that I worked with. And you mentioned a few then, um, as well as, you know, I've been fortunate to, to, to spend time with Mike Phelan and, and people of that calibre. So, yeah, it's just amazing, you know, to, to share experiences and to, to, yeah, to learn from people like that. Well, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that you've learned on that journey. Uh, but I'd like to go back, if I can, to 2012. And I guess the context for the question is that my parents emigrated to Australia as well in 1977. And that prompted me to then probably leave Australia and spend 16 years outside of the country, but I'm back. But either way, I do understand how big a decision it is to leave home. 
And I guess I'd like to start by saying, by asking you, what was going through your mind when you moved to Australia back in 2012? Uh, to be honest, it was something that I'd always thought of doing. Um, you know, football career is a short career. Uh, we're talking 15, 20 years maximum. And, you know, I'd spent 15 years at, at Sheffield United from, from a schoolboy at 16 years old to breaking into the first team at, at 18 and, and 400 appearances later. You know, 15 years later, I, I, um, yeah, I just found myself, um, you know, I'd become a dad, uh, to, Beautiful twin daughters that were born, born premature, uh, were in and out of hospital for 12 months, the first 12 months of their life. And, and, and then, yeah, I got to that p- period in my life when I thought, I think it's time that I, I left Sheffield United now, um, and, and see what's out there. And, and the club had always had a relationship with the Central Coast Mariners through Kevin McCabe, who was the original, well, not the original one of the, the long standing owners of Sheffield United, a great man. Um, and yeah, we'd had players from the Mariners come over uh, and train with us young players and we always had that connection. So uh, I had quite a few options on the table, uh, Championship, League One, MLS. And then the, the Mariners was an option that came up. They were looking for a midfielder. They'd never won the, the, the championship and they'd failed it a few times in the final. And yeah, I spoke to Graham Arnold at the time and, and, and Laurie McKinnon, who was the 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 CEO or the football manager, a great guy, still on the central coast now and a big advocate of mine and a, and a mentor for me. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, three-year contract. And I went home to my wife and said, I think we're going to move to Australia. And she was she was uh, shocked because I'd had so many opportunities to leave Sheffield United to, to go down south, you know, to clubs down south and, you know, up to Scotland. And I'd, I'd never moved anywhere and yeah, all of a sudden I'm telling her that we're moving to the other side of the world. So look, it was a moment where I think we just thought, why not? You know, I was 30 years old and felt like if I didn't move at that point, you know, possibly I would have missed that opportunity. And just so happens that that first year I came over, I helped the club win its maiden championship, A-League championship. And it seemed like the best decision I'd ever made. And, and that sort of cemented the, the decision that I'd made. And, yeah, obviously it was uh, refreshing to come to a different country and a different culture. Um, and, and I thought the standard of the A-League was, was really good. So I really enjoyed the first year. And 11 years later, I'm still here. Living by the beach up there in the central coast, which we, for those that don't know, it, it really is a, a pretty special place to live. But Nick, your, your playing career is interesting in that there's a lot of opportunity around learning from these critical matches. I could find five finals games and one relegation game in your whole career. But the other interesting thing is you lost all of them. (laughs) I'm wondering what learning you took from that that you then ended up going on and applying when you became a coach. Oh, I think the the experiences that you learn as a player and and with the coaches and the people that you work with, I think ultimately they mold you into the person that you are and mold you into the coach that, that you are and you want to be. And, you know, because you take the good things and, and you get rid of the bad things, but, you know, ultimately you always have to be yourself. And that's that's one bit of advice I've, I've always been given by the, by my parents and the people close to me is, you know, just be yourself. And I think you learn from defeats for sure. People say it all the time, but you do, you learn a lot about yourself and, you know, a lot about, everybody else in, in times when it's hard. Um, and I had some amazing times at, at Sheffield United. 
so unlucky in the playoffs. It was, I think, twice we finished third in, in the championship, just missed out on automatic promotion. And I think if you look at the stats of team that finished teams that finished third, you know, in, uh, in terms of going up through the playoffs, it's very, very minimal, you know, because the teams that just squeeze in fifth or sixth on the last day of the season, you know, they come in with momentum and, and no pressure and expectation. And the reality is that the playoff final in the championship is the, the biggest high-pressure game in the world because the bonus at the end of it is is a, is a, a space in the Premier League. So, yeah, very unlucky, um, you know, a few times in, in the championship playoff final. And then the only season uh, that Sheffield United were relegated, um, I spent a lot of time out um, because the Twins were just born. Um, I was in the hospital quite a lot with them and missed a lot of football. Um, went on loan to Millwall. First time I'd ever gone on loan anywhere. Uh, they were back in the championship, but fortunately, uh, tore my calf pretty badly, which I'd never done before. Um, I think that was just a result of, of not training and not playing much. And then back to Sheffield United, got fit and I think I was fit training for 10 days before the, the playoff final. Um, and Kevin McDonald, uh, who'd had a fantastic season in midfield, got injured. And now he started the game. Um, it was a, a, a game against Huddersfield, a bad game. I remember it was at Wembley, uh, really hot. Uh, I think 80,000, 90,000 people in the stadium. It finished nil-nil. And then we lost on penalties. And, and yeah, that was a moment that I sort of knew that I had to move on. And I needed a change. Um mentally and, and for the family and, and that's when the opportunity came to come to the Central Coast Mariners in Australia so you know, we could probably spend a few hours talking about all the, the good times at Sheffield United and the cup cup runs the semi-finals and, and you know the fantastic times that I had there but yeah definitely a couple of tough times and, and as a coach I think you know you really take from them hard times because as a player you can sense that it's not going well and, and maybe the coach has lost the group for whatever reason and I think, you know, man management uh, always is is the main reason because you have to manage the group, the players. And, and in the hard times, that's when, you know, you do get tested. Um, and that's when the culture that you create as a head coach and your standards that you drive, um, if you don't keep keep to them, then I've seen it very quickly go the wrong way. And, and yeah, you definitely take a lot of learnings from more from the hard times than from the times where you have success because... Um, yeah, you're sort of enjoying that journey and you look back on it afterwards, but, um, you know, how do you get out of tough situations and how do you manage the team and, and the, the players and the staff out of them? And that's something that I've really uh, researched a lot and, and tried to take a lot from my own experiences. I want to talk to you about the culture that's emerged at the Mariners, but first, could I just ask you a little bit more? You talked in that answer there about low expectations, you know, when teams are, are fifth and sixth and pushing up, and you mentioned man management again. Both of these things played out in the Mariners story with their tremendous victory, you know, last year. But before we get to what happened, let's go back to the start. What were some of the first things you did when you stepped into that role that helped propel the team forward? Go right back to when I sort of started coaching in, in, in the Mariners Academy. Um, you know, the club was not producing players. You know, the academy had a bad reputation. And, you know, the, the first thing I wanted to do was strip it all back and, and rebuild the academy. Uh, implemented sports science, uh, sports psychology. Uh, you know, brought in a guy called Ezio that's still working with the first team now uh, that was involved last season. 
you know, player support, uh, stuff that wasn't in the academy and stuff that I knew as a young player, especially this generation, that you need the extra support because of the pressures that, that you come under as a young player as you go through the ranks. So, you know, once I'd rebuilt the academy and um, started producing players for the first team, which had not happened in a long time, then to get the, the, the first team head coach role, you know, really it was just to carry on what I'd started in the academy and, and bring the young players through that I believed could compete at the A-League level. And when you're at the club with the smallest budget, um, and, and to be honest, it was when I took over the job, there was very little left in the in the budget. I think we had to bring in eight players to, 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 to uh, make the roster, the league requirements. And the budget was about a quarter of the budget left. So, um, you know, if you do the maths on that, it was virtually impossible to bring in seasoned professionals. That was never my remit. I always wanted to bring in the young players and I brought players that I hadn't even trained with the first team onto minimum A-league contracts. The likes of Jacob Farrell, Max Ballard, uh, Dan Hall, you know, players that I've been playing the last few years. So that was my first job. And, and then it was to manage the group Manage the senior players that that were already there, um, and and yeah, just to uh, without being in a crazy rush, just to implement my own playing style and, and a new identity for the club, which I think is always a reflection of you as a leader and a coach. Because you know, I think the team will always reflect who you are as a person and your beliefs in football. And um, as I said, with the sports psychology and stuff like that, um, I brought the staff that had been working in the academy. You know, people would never give them an opportunity in the first team. And I also brought them into the first team fold. Um, and, and really, you know, we just continued what we'd started in the academy. And, and it was, yeah, it was it was refreshing for everybody. And you have to have the siege mentality at a club like the Central Coast Mariners because, you know, you don't have the resources or the budget that every most clubs have in the, the early competition. But... You have to instill belief that that's irrelative and, you know, you, you can challenge everybody if you make the players believe. And I believe that, you know, within two years we could win the championship and fortunately, I'm not a psychic, but fortunately that happened and there's a lot of factors that go into that and a lot of people and staff that, you know, that, that without naming everybody, that played a, a huge part in that. You talked in there about, you used words to the effect of being sort of clear on what you stood for and what the identity, I think was the word you used to the club, was going to be. Did you actually take the time to record any of that, to write it down and work with it? Or was it something that you just developed as you were meeting people and interacting with them? Look, I, I've got an assistant, Sergio Rimondo, who you've probably seen. I met him um, many years ago when I started the coaching badges uh, in the UK. And he's an amazing human, a fantastic coach. And between us, we um, yeah we sort of created a new game model for the club, um, and, and and player profiles of, of what we needed, because you know, the reality is you, you can have a vision of how you want to play, but if you don't have the players to suit the way you want to play, then you have to adapt. And we probably did that in the first season. We adapted um, in terms of how we played, what formation we played, um, and, and the players that we had. And, and then, yeah, we slowly implemented, um, you know, after results, we slowly implemented and, and yeah, I brought through a lot of the younger players that I really believed in. We created a, a game model um, in terms of what I wanted to be as a coach. I think I had to be really clear on that. And, you know, I want, always wanted to be a development coach and that doesn't mean just developing young players. It means developing senior players and, and working with them 
individually position specific to to make them better players, but first and foremost, make them better people. And that's why I think the, the human element is the most important thing because you know when you talk about man management, you, know, you have to know your players, you have to know what makes them tick, you know, you have to know some players like an arm around them, some players like a kick up the backside. And I think, you know, when you know the players intimately um, and you understand how they work and, and you know, how how can you help with that? Well, you know, I've got a sports psychologist that, that does surveys and, you know, we ask a lot of the players about their goals and, and, and goal setting and from them answers, you know, you can get a lot of, of a psychological profile from each player of what, you know, what they ambition is, you know, what they want from the season. And, and that really does help you, you know, when you're trying to motivate them individually because not everybody's motivated the same way. And, and that's that human element where, you know, when we, when we wrote down at the start what we wanted to do and implement, it was, you know, it was that culture where it's a learning environment and, and everybody's, you know, becoming a better person. And, and, I, and I believe people can change, you know. And, and I've proven that with some of the players that I signed when people told me not to sign them. And then you see that that's not the case. You know, you can change people. And if you change them for the better you know, and, and coach them and spend the time to make them a better better player, then the results are always on the field. And I think you could see that last season by the end of the season. Um, you know, we, we uh, yeah, we became champions, but we also weren't that team at the start of the season. You know, we developed that over the course of the season. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's interesting, though, learning about the team and, and watching it unfold in real time because, as you said, you had some individuals who reinvented themselves at the Mariners, but there was also an amazing connection within the group. Like, there was so much change, and yet the cohesion was in advance of the amount of time they played together. I'm wondering, is there any any top tips or something you learned through that process that you could share with us? Well, I, th- I always wanted to be honest, you know, as a coach, and that's something that we, that we always spoke about. And, you know, we had the family values that the players wrote themselves, you know? So I think if you ask the group to write, you know, what their values are as a, as a collective, then that's the, 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 the values that they have to live by. And, and I think creating that, that, Know, just that family environment where you know everybody's coming from different places. We have young players just starting the career, senior players 
trying to resurrect the career. But you know, the ultimate goal is, is if we're successful, then everybody benefits from that, um, and, and making the boys understand that. But also keeping everybody honest and you know being honest with them um, because I always as a coach. I always felt the best way that I was motivated was when the coaches were honest with me, you know, good, bad or indifferent. I really, really respected that and, and appreciated that. And I think that the human element of that, the players really do. And I'm always honest with them, whether they like it or not. And, and I think they respect that. Uh, but yeah, you have to create that culture and you have to create that that environment where people come in and want to enjoy training. Um, you know, when you're leading into the game on the weekend, you know, the, the game is the end point. You know, what you do in the week is it's about working hard and enjoying it and, and improving, and then hoping that that you get the result on the week weekend, which is never guaranteed. Um, you know, but as long as the boys put the, the effort in, and you can see that the, the intention is there for for following the game plan that you've created in the week, that's that's all you can ask. Um, and and after the game, yeah, just just reviewing the game and. And, and learning from the things that you you need to learn from, and moving on to the next game, and, and you know, not not dwelling too much because in sport there's always the next game, and I always found that the coaches that dwell too much on the result, um, you know, going into the next game, you always still got that same result on your mind or, or the, the last game, but you don't have time for that. You have to, you know, uh, review and, and put that game behind and, and move forward because the next game is the most important. Nick, do you have any routines you use to get that debrief, that review done and then move on quickly? Yeah, so we always try to have the day off after the game because, you know, I don't always believe that, that you know, in, in the emotion of, of after the game is always the right time to, to have a massive conversation. And I think, you know, a quick debrief after the game, um, hopefully you win the game, the boys can enjoy that moment. You lose the game, the boys can reflect on that, but then you know the day off the, the the next day to you know to to digest everything and go over the video and the anal- analysis and then I've got fantastic staff in the analysis that you know we between us we, we uh, review the game you know we get the clips the powerful clips to to show them the good stuff the bad stuff um and the next day we deliver that um go through the review and then yeah we sort of move on from there and and use the rest of the week to just go through individually with the players because I think a lot of players are visual learners and, and you know the technology now is so advanced that you can at the click of a button have have clips from every player um, and, and some players are, are really driven by learning um, from watching you know um, what they did well what they could do better um, but that's time consuming as well so you know between myself Sergio and the analysis staff we try to you know we try to go through individual stuff quickly um, with the players through the week because before you know it you're reviewing the next opponent and yeah I think having that structure the boys enjoy that because yeah you know what the week entails and you know the main thing is that you're building that whole week for the following game and how are you going to win that game because yeah it's always about trying to win the game and finding solutions to beat your opposition Nick you you were quite ill um, in your teen years, it affected your career at one stage. And I know your mum uh, got on a letter writing campaign and managed to get you another chance. But I'm sure that that struggle is manifest itself now in the way that you think about uh, the situation that the team is often facing. But at the same time, just learning about you, you're very keen on supporting youth and pushing you through. And you've talked about it in this interview, giving them a go. But 
there must be this fine line between not supporting youth to the extent where they develop a sense of entitlement and they think they're just going to get a go because they're young, but also finding that line where you challenge them. And I'm just wondering how you went about that over the last couple of seasons with the Mariners. So that's a really good question because I think a lot of young players these days are always in a rush. You know, they always think they should be in the first team, but I think the reality of it is, you know, you you have to expose them at the right times. Um, And quite often it's a a real reality check for for some players that are possibly doing well in the NPL. And and you bring them a chain with the first team and it's, it's a different level. You know, it's, it's, to completely different level, and and you know sometimes by exposing them to that, um, you know uh, you see very quickly, and and myself and Sergio we see very quickly the players that we feel can develop in, into first team players, and you see very quickly the ones that you think are going to struggle. Um, but then it's about you know how do you accelerate their development, and that's something that we we do a lot of work on at the Mariners because reality is you know. Young players in, in, in Australia, they don't play enough games at youth level. Uh, they have big periods with no games. So you're bringing them in to a first team environment where physically they're maybe way off it, tactically, mentally. But the only way to get them up to speed is to, to have them training with the first team and, and, and accelerate the development as a player, as a person with the sports psychology and everything that we do. Um, because it's not easy, you know, but I think again, I'm not a sports psychologist. I've spoke to good people, but by overloading their brains and giving them tasks that they have to find solutions for, at times they find it really difficult at the start. But some will naturally just uh, take it on, and others will, some will really struggle. Um, but ultimately, you know, you have to have them in that that first team environment to develop, and you know that's why we've had so much success because you have to take risks and. Um, you know, I came from the generation um, where you'd have senior first team players that wouldn't want a load of young players training with you. A, because they probably see that the energy that they bring is is threatening to their position in the team. And I had that when I first took over at the Mariners. You know, I had senior players telling me that, um, you know, there's too many young players training with the first team and, you know, then they're, they're messing the session up and stuff. And I always just remember saying, look, that's that's not your your choice. And reality is it won't be long before they're taking over you. And, and, you know, that, that, that happened, um, without going into, into full details. Um, because I knew that, you know, as a club, the Mariners needed to be a club that developed young players because if you have the smallest budget, you need to develop your own players. And the only way to do that is they train with the first team because without having that experience of, of training with the best players and, and, and physically competing against them, you know, it's very, very hard to, to catch up um, physically. So, yeah, that, that, you know, that was a risk I took. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, the results from that were, were players playing in the first team. We've got more players in youth national teams now than, than ever before. And we've sold more players overseas than any other A-League team. You know, in the last two years, it's been phenomenal, you know, to see the players go to top-level clubs in Europe, you know, Premier League, you know, Bundesliga, Championship, SPL, you know, they only go to them leagues if they're physically capable of competing in them leagues. And I think that's the biggest gap that players in Australia struggle with. The Mariner story is a great underdog story. And there's many, many people listening. I mean, most of us are in, whether it's a company that's coming second or third, you know, or we're 
we're in teams that aren't consistently winning. Many of us are in that position, you know, where we've got a small budget and we're fighting, fighting to compete. So what have you learned? What's the secret sauce that creates a good underdog team? I think again that the, the underdog tag is is you know there's always clubs that are the underdog, but you know the Mariners are the ultimate underdog, and and after failing for so many years, you know, it was about bringing in the right staff, putting in the right structure, and and giving the players the belief. Because at the end of the day, everybody's human. You know, I'm fortunate in my time as a player. You know, I'm just an average guy from a working class background in Leeds, and I remember lining up in the tunnel next to Steven Gerrard and Cristiano Ronaldo and. Paul Scholes and and you look across your shoulder and think they're just human beings, you know. And and I think if you think that that you can't compete with them, then you've lost already. And, and that's something we said to the boys that it's irrelevant. They're not better. They're not better players than you. You know, maybe they've had more games, but you know, if we get it right as a team and we stick to the values and beliefs that we have, you know, and the identity and the playing style, and everybody buys into you know what you want as a coach and the way you want to play then yeah, you have to give them the belief that you can beat anybody. And um, I think, you know, by the end of last season, you could see the belief in in the team and the way that we played. Um, I don't think anybody, you know, obviously thought what would happen in the final in terms of the goals we scored, the amount of goals we scored. But I truly believe that, you know, way before that final, we would go on and and win the championship. So, um, you know, you have to have that belief. And I always say to the players at the start of every season, if you don't believe and don't think that you can win, you know, every competition you're in, then there's no point in getting out of bed because you've already, you've already beaten yourself. And, and I'm a massive believer on visualization. And, and you probably saw the stories, but you know, along with the sports psychologist, we, we picked the, the picture up from 2013 when the club last won the championship. And my face was on there. I think the club doctor was on there, Doc King. He's been on every photo, I think, for 20 years. Um, and I said, by the end of the season, you know, everybody's going to have the face on this photo, photograph um, and we're going to win the championship. And that was just another another thing that we did. And, and you know, that's not going to work every year. But I think that really helped the boys you know, want to win the next game because they wanted to see their face on there. And by the end of it, you know, we had the two photographs up of the 2013 and, and 23. So that was a real special moment. And that sort of cemented, you know, that, that visualisation because... Some players believe in it, some players don't. But I think by the end of it, whether you believed in it or not, everybody, you know, was behind, you know, behind the idea. And and yeah, it was uh yeah, it was a special moment. Nick, you you you've talked about belief many, many times in this interview. I'm wondering, do you have any routines that you use to reflect and sort of renew your energy and your belief? Look, I uh... You know, I think during COVID and stuff, there was so much stuff online and I think everybody got overloaded with information. Um, you know, I try to be a little bit more selective now because there is so much information out there, um, some good, some not good. Um, but I think I'm really fortunate that I've got good people, like good mentors, you know, that, that I can speak to and that follow what I've done here and, and actually, um, you know, just sort of remind you of, you know, how you got to where you are and what you did. And ultimately I think that was being, being myself and, and having my own belief on, on how we wanted to play and, and what we wanted to do. And um, yeah, it, it's, I'm not one for writing stuff down. I'm really not. And unfortunately now, you know, there's a documentaries and stuff that, 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 
we had last season with the early goal access. So, you know, there is memories there that have been captured on, on video. Um, but I just think, you know, memory and, and the feeling, you know, the feeling that you get after winning, you know, you, you can't replicate that feeling unless you win again. So it's like just reminding the boys though, that feeling of winning, you know, everybody wants that. But also, you know, when you lose, which which you do, you know, football is ups and downs. It's, it's a big roller coaster. So it's sport. You know, but I always say to the boys, you know, you don't get too high with the highs, too low with the lows. Because if you do, you find yourself on that on that journey where it's just up and down, up and down. But you know, the reality is, you know, you win, you win games, you lose games, you draw games. Um, but you you have to stay stable and have to keep with the same vision of where you want to be at the end of it. And um again, you know, I learned that from from good people. And I've also seen it on the wrong side where, you know, people are so high after a win. That they lose a game and it's it's the end of the world. And then how do you pick yourself up from that? It's a game of football, you know. You want to win every game. That that's a fact. And the fans are not happy when you lose. That's a fact. But I always believe if the, if the boys give the right effort and you lose a game, then yeah, you can accept that. And it's it's not the time to to you know think it's the end of the world because it's not. Um, and then you have to pick everybody up and, and go again. So yeah, learning from stuff like that and. Trust. Try to be be calm, but also, if you cross me and and you know you do the things wrong, then I'm more than happy to to come down on you. So as long as the boys understand that, which they do, and the staff, then yeah, I think that's uh, that's a big part of um, yeah who I am as a person. Nick, you've been a captain and now a head coach, or I know in football they call them managers, but when you look for leadership qualities now in others around the club, support staff or players, what are you trying to identify? Well, people say you, you're, you're a born leader. I think some people are born leaders. You know, other people, they can become leaders and if you teach them. And I, I think you know, the best leaders are the ones that encourage, you know, and, and again, you know, you have some leaders that shout constantly and, and people think they're a leader. You know, I don't think they are. You know, I think the ones that encourage and see the people that are maybe struggling, you know, and grab them to one side and say, listen, you're struggling. I can see that. You know, what can we do to help? You know, what's going on? What's going on? I think you know, that sort of leadership and, um, you know, to, to, to make people leaders and, and if you can, develop more leaders within the team. You know, it doesn't matter who wears the armband. The armband is, is more a reflection of somebody that's a spokesperson for the team. You know, I think the ones that lead by their action, the effort, and you have ones that lead by speaking. You know, I think if you can have a mix of different types of leaders, because everybody's a different leader, but ultimately I'm the leader of the team. I'm, I have to make the, the decisions on the team and the hard decisions. And, and you know, um, as a leader, you have to make the decisions that you believe in. Um, but also, yeah, also encourage and you know help people be a good person. You know, you have to be a good person to to, to be a good leader, and 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 sometimes that might be by just seeing someone struggling and telling them to go and see the sports psychologist, or you know telling the sports psychologist that maybe this person's struggling. And you know, we know as men, you know, it, it's it's true that we keep a lot of stuff to ourselves. You know, and it's only when it becomes so heavy that you have to share it with somebody. And you know, we talk about sort of that stuff, you know, the mindset and the and the um yeah, the emotional side of it that yeah, everybody's human and, and years ago it was just 
you're not good enough or whatever it was, you're not playing. Whereas now it's different. You, know, you have to get the most out of, your, out of everybody. And if you can get the best out of everybody, then you're going to be a better team uh, or and a better organisation. Nick, I know, uh, I know your wife's probably waiting for you to get outside and keep cutting the grass or cleaning the front of the house. So maybe just one more question. You're very early in your your head coaching career, just a couple of years in, and already you've had so much success. And I know there's years and years and years to go, and I know it's probably a strange question to ask, but if you did take a moment to reflect, what is it that you hope the legacy is that you're leaving at the Mariners? I just well, the day I leave the Mariners, I, I just want to leave it in a better place than than it was when I took over, and I think that's something I've always tried to do, you know, with the academy, you know, with the teams that I've been at, and you know, right now the the, the club has gone from being you know one of the the lowest attendances um, to twenty two thousand people at the last home game, one of the highest attendances. Um, the training ground was. Just one pitch. It's now got gyms. You know, we've in, we've reinvested some of the money from the player sales into gym equipment and, and gyms. You know, so you know to to develop better athletes because I do believe that you know if you can become a better athlete, you can definitely become a better player in the modern game. So you know, they're the sort of things when you talk about wanting to leave a legacy, but but the history is the history, though. The the the, the records that we broke, you know, winning the grand final is is always going to go down in history this season in the AFC Cup for the first time in, in, in I think, the club's history, um, the first cup final. So, yeah, look, the, 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 the story's still not finished, but I think the moment you leave any club or organisation, if you can leave it in a better place than when you took over it um, and with structures in place to help it succeed, then I'll be really, really happy because it's a special club and, yeah, it will always have a special place in my heart because my family have grown up here and, it's um, yeah, it's an amazing place with great fans and, and good community. Um, but yeah, hopefully leave it in a in, in a better place than it was before. Nick, it's been great to meet you and hear a little bit more about the Mariner story. It is a really phenomenal story of a an under resourced club stepping up and just changing history with, as you said, a focus on belief, man management, and youth and. I want to just thank you again for taking the time to talk to us and take us through the story and give us a little bit more insight into your leadership style. No, I really appreciate the, the, the conversation and you taking time. It's a real honour to be on on your podcast. So hopefully it, it, it helps some people in in a small way. Um, you know, we're maybe looking for answers, and it's not always the same in every situation, every organisation. But I think ultimately the human element of it, if you get that right, and, and you know, I remember seeing a quote, and it was always about leadership and if you can win the hearts and minds of of the men women kids whoever it is that that you're leading then you've got a good chance of being successful i think that's a great place for us to finish hearts and minds thanks nick i really appreciate it and all the very best for the season ahead thank you hi everyone you have been listening to the great coach nick montgomery I hope you got a lot out of Nick's style and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. When I listened back, the other key highlights for me were Nick's focus on honesty, which was based on his learning as a player that the best way to motivate him was through being honest. His view that leadership can be taught and encouraged in others because ultimately everyone is a leader in some way. 
how the great coaches are differentiated by their people management skills, and wanting to leave a legacy of leaving the Mariners in a better place through his time there as a player, academy coach, and then finally head coach. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. The comments and feedback keep us going. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.